Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee opens Phase 1 of their new permanent exhibit, Forever Changed, La Florida, 1513 to 1821. Florida was a colony of Spain for more than 250 years, and that's longer than Florida's been a part of the United States. Former journalist Al Spivak of Vero Beach remembers participating in the Nixon-Kennedy presidential debates of 1960. The first question I asked them uh, was about their stands on civil rights. At that time, a very major issue. The legacy of the New Deal in Florida, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Ensemble plays 16th century music at the opening of the new exhibit Forever Changed, La Florida, 1513 to 1821. The exhibit is the largest addition to the Museum of Florida history in its 35-year existence. The name of the exhibit, Forever Changed, suggests an objective approach, not a celebration of Florida's colonial period, but a recognition of its impact. Lisa Barton is Senior Museum Curator. Yes, that is very true. We wanted to um, make it known that there were, um, you know, native Floridians who had lived here 13, 14,000 years before um, the Spanish came. So um, it, it was a turning point, not a beginning point. Phase one of the Forever Changed exhibit looks at the indigenous cultures of Florida at the time of European contact in 1513 up to the establishment of the first permanent Spanish colony in 1565. When completed, Phase 2 will continue up to 1821, when Florida was named a United States Territory. Lee Ellen Thornton is Head of Research and Collections at the Museum of Florida History. Lisa Barton is our primary uh, curator of this exhibit. She did the bulk of the research, she did all of the writing, uh, artifact selection, so she's you know truly done uh, all of the um, difficult work in the exhibit. Um, and you, you'll see that when you go through the exhibit. But we also um, involved um, outside consultants, scholars, um, and um, they helped us uh, frame the overall concepts, the, um, the messages that we wanted to send along, and as well as the content. Um, and so they, we had a, a meeting um, beginning back in... Um, October of 2008, and we brought together at that time nine scholars uh, in the humanities, and they um, looked over our preliminary um, outlines 
and uh, artifacts that had been selected, subjects, an outline, timeline, theme, and they gave us valuable input. And so um, that really uh, motivated us, kicked us off, and um, we worked with their suggestions. And um, so you can see their input really in the final exhibit. Walking through the Forever Changed exhibit, it is clear that racial, ethnic, and gender diversity was a primary focus of the exhibit. Senior Museum Curator Lisa Barton. Well, we know from the records that there were at least two Africans with Juan Ponce de Leon on his fifteen thirteen voyage, and we know that Africans accompanied all of the expeditions. Um, one notable example was um, Esteban, who was with the Panfilo de Narvaez expedition in 1528. Um, and we know that there were blacks with the French who um, attempted a settlement um, in northeast Florida in 1564. Um, in, in, um, in addition to people of African descent, there were also Catholic clergy who were part of the expeditions. And as Lee Ellen said, there were um, two Spanish women with um, DeSoto. And there were um, 1,500 settlers who came with uh, Tristan de Luna in 1559. Women and children, families, um, clergy. There were even Mexican Indians with them on, on that voyage. So it, it was a very diverse um, group of people who were traveling to La Florida in that time. Esteban was born in West Africa and taken as a slave to Spain. He accompanied his master on the disastrous Panfilo de Narvaez expedition to Florida in 1528. The group faced many hardships in Florida, so they built rafts in an attempt to sail to Spanish territory in present-day Mexico. Many Spaniards died at sea, but Esteban and three other survivors washed ashore in South Texas. The group tried to locate a Spanish settlement. Once the concept was selected, a timeline established, and research completed, the information had to be structured for public presentation. Gina Brenson is director of the Museum of Florida History. Well, we actually sought the input of a professional design firm for that portion of the project. We engaged Synergy Design Group of Tallahassee designer John LeCastro to work with our in-house design team to come up with the visual, the look, the types of fonts that would be used, the colors, all of the things that would be visual elements to support the content of the exhibit. So that's how we developed that part of it with a professional designer. Brenson says the Forever Changed exhibit is designed to appeal to a variety of age groups and learning styles. Oh, certainly to appeal to the types of visitors from the general public who would visit the museum. Uh, the audiences such as the school groups that visit, especially the fourth grade and eighth grade classes, things that would be able to engage them. Uh, we had actually done, before we started the design, an interpretive plan to talk about ways that we would present the content and then reinforce it with things like our interactive elements that are included, uh, such as games in the interactive kiosks and ways to present the information and engage the public that way. Senior Museum Curator Lisa Barton. There are many different things for people to enjoy in the new exhibit. Um, the first, I would have to say, would be the artifacts. There are 
um, 136 artifacts and reproductions in the new exhibit. Um, there are five um, life-size figures that are based on real people who lived during the time, um, and each of those figures has an audio program that talks about their lives. There's also a recreated Tamuquin dwelling um, of um, wooden poles and palm thatch that people can enter and kind of experience what that space may have been like. There is obviously the ship that is um, one of the centerpieces of the new exhibit. It's a, approximately a two-thirds scale um, example or, I'm sorry, replica of a Spanish now. And on board, you can um, do a couple of hands-on activities as well as interact with the computer kiosks. And also something really interesting for people to enjoy is the large-scale murals that we have in the new exhibit. There are nine of them, and they depict um, a, a, sea, a scene at sea, um, the Spanish dock scene where people are... Um, congregated on the dock about to board the ship, and um, scenes of Florida uh, nature and the beach. The Forever Changed exhibit opens with artifacts from Florida's many indigenous tribes, from Calusa masks to Appalachian pottery. A docent explains the use of weapons by native Floridians to interested visitors. Um, and if you were to use a, a gar scale, it, it, would do, uh, it would do a lot of damage if it hit raw flesh, but against somebody in armor, it was uh, useless. But if breaks. you were to uh, hit somebody in chainmail with one of these, it would break, but that's exactly what you would want because it would splinter and keep going. And so uh, after a while, the, the, the natives are doing so well with this that many of the Spanish, not all of them, but um, many of them abandoned the chainmail altogether and just wore the padding that you're supposed to wear underneath because that would do just as much to stop a, a projectile as anything. Kira Noor is Senior Museum Registrar at the Museum of Florida History. And my job is dealing with the artifacts, taking care of them, getting the loans in. So the most interesting part for me is dealing with the artifacts, making sure they're preserved and displayed in an appropriate manner that benefits the public and benefits the lifespan of the artifact. So the biggest challenge was getting them out there for the public to see in a beautiful way, um, but getting them here in a timely manner, um, getting all the details done for that with the lenders, who are all very generous. The Native American and Spanish tools, utensils, and weapons on display in the Forever Changed exhibit are a mixture of actual artifacts and reproductions. Drew Erickson is curator of exhibits. We go to the source as much as possible, you know, look at artifacts. Sometimes we only had access to photographs of things. Um, but try and recreate them as much as possible in with in the methods they they used in those days. We didn't carve everything with shark's teeth, but there was a little bit of that. Um, finding the right materials is important, and you know having staff that have the skills to to do that. It takes a good eye and a good hand. The Forever Changed exhibit is presented in both English and Spanish. Senior Museum Curator Lisa Barton says this new exhibit commemorates the long history of the Spanish in Florida. When people come to the new exhibit, we hope that they understand the longevity of the Spanish presence in the state. Um, Florida was a colony of Spain for more than 250 years, and that's longer than Florida's been a part of the United States. So there's a rich, deep history there, and we want to convey uh, that to the public, and that's a lasting legacy that's still here when you visit St. Augustine or 
or any number of, of, of places in Florida, you can still see the evidence of that past. Phase one of the exhibit Forever Changed, La Florida, 1513 to 1821, is now open at the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. If you enjoy this program, you'll also want to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. All you have to do is go to myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker. Much of the popular picture of St. Augustine has relied upon the observations and writings of short-term visitors, and usually those who wrote in English. John Bartram of Philadelphia visited St. Augustine in 1765 and wrote, As the houses had no chimneys, so they had no glass windows. In his anti-Spanish perspective, Bartram credited English officers who just arrived to newly British Florida with installing window panes to let in sunshine and the chimneys that are now peeping above the roofs of the houses. Yet the Spanish owners of the buildings who actually walked in and out of the buildings, who supervised construction, alterations, and repairs, left us few sprightly and quotable comments. The persons who used the doors and windows reported little more than brief itemized statements of costs. Buried within building appraisals and probate cases for the Spanish homeowners are descriptions of houses with glass-paned windows, or the home with fireplaces at each end of the drawing room. Yet Bartram's comment prevails among our tour train drivers today in the old city. Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Retired journalist Al Spivak of Vero Beach started out as a copy boy in the 1940s, working his way up to covering Joe McCarthy, Harry Truman, and many others. Janie Gould talks with Spivak as he remembers participating in the Nixon-Kennedy presidential debates of 1960. I think if the United States is maintaining a strong society here in the United States, I think that we can meet any internal threat. The major threat is external and will continue. Mr. Nixon, comment? I agree with Senator Kennedy's appraisal generally in this respect. The question of communism within the United States has been one that has worried us in the past. It is one that will continue to be a problem for years to come. The debates, it, TV was in its infancy, as you said, and the candidates agreed to four televised debates, first time in history. 
and you were there. Tell me about them. Were you surprised that both candidates agreed to do a debate, four debates? Yes, because they didn't like each other. That was very evident in any private conversation you might have had with the two. Kennedy probably disliked Nixon more than the opposite. What did he say about Nixon privately? I don't remember, and maybe it wasn't in the words so much as in the gestures and attitude, but but I know they didn't like each other. They didn't like each other much in the Senate. They had been in the Senate together, of course. They agree to the debate. Did people think they were going to be as pivotal as they turned out to be, do you think? Probably not, because it was new. The first debate was in Chicago on September 26th of 1960. I wasn't there. I had that day off. I was elsewhere and uh, watching it on television and very surprised at how Nixon looked because uh, he was looking very pale, very sickly, and I wasn't aware at the time that he actually had been ill. He had had a knee injury. Ironically, the doctor who treated him later became my doctor. He was The doctor was in the Army at that time at Walter Reed Hospital. So did he look like he was in pain, maybe? Not that I recall, no, but he did look as if he had had some problems, and also he had not agreed to have facial makeup. And by that, I don't mean very heavy makeup. I'm talking about pancake, just a simple little thing to uh, sort of remove the glare of those very powerful lights at the time. Television needed very strong lights then, probably more so than today. It never entered my mind until it was written about by Theodore Francis White in his book, The Making the President. But one of the things that hurt Nixon was he was wearing a gray suit, and that sort of blended in with the background of the set, and that made him look bad. Kennedy was wearing a dark blue suit, and he was looking robust. He was looking very happy. Ironically, Robert Dalek, a biographer of Kennedy, pointed out that Kennedy was a much sicker man than Nixon was. Kennedy had a multitude of physical problems, some stemming from the war, others stemming from his youth. Nixon was a much healthier man, but he looked much more sickly. And he looked older, even though they were approximately the same age. Yeah, they were from the same generation, same war, same whatever. If you look at a videotape of it now, it doesn't seem that different. At the time, though, it did. Now, the second debate, which took place on October 7th, you were a panelist. How did that happen? It happened because the networks were producing the debates. I don't know whether the word sponsoring is accurate, but they were producing them. In the first debate, they chose their own network correspondents to be members of the four-person panel to ask questions of the candidates. And when you say the networks, you better specify there were just three networks. Three television plus the uh, uh, mutual radio network, much more powerful then than it is today. If it exists today, I don't even know. But it was ABC, CBS, and NBC who were gigantic powers at the time as television went because there was no cable and there were a limited number of independent stations. Well, there was a hue and cry among the press corps, the print press corps, the, the press representing newspapers, wire services, magazines, that this didn't give an accurate view of press uh, to just have networks. So there was a lottery. The names of two print journalists were drawn from a hat by the press secretaries for Kennedy and Nixon. I was one of the two names drawn from the hat to be on the panel of the second debate. How did that make you feel? Well, being very strange to television, it made me feel a little scared, a little timid. However, I was very flattered and very happy because it couldn't hurt my career unless I messed it up. <laughs> and uh, It made me feel just a little nervous. How much time did you have to prepare for the debate? 
Oh, more than a week. And of course, we didn't tell the candidates what we were going to ask. I was at that time flying in the press pool on Kennedy's plane. I remember one of his assistants, we sat where there were tables, and one of his assistants coming up and spreading all of his notes in front of me upside down. That is, to me, they were upside down, so that I could be reading all sorts of topics. And I was very, very careful not to read them. (laughs) Things he maybe wanted you to read? Well, I had that feeling. I can't say it's true, but I felt that way. The night of the debate, you were one of four panelists. Tell me the questions you asked. There was only time for each of us to have three or at most four questions. I had three. I'm sorry about that because I had a lot of questions ready to ask. The first question I asked them uh, was about their stands on civil rights. At that time, a very major issue. There had been no civil rights legislation enacted. It was still a very controversial issue, and you still had North and South battles over that. So I asked the two where each of them stood, because during the campaign, each had been accusing them of not paying enough attention to it. The second question I asked was, whether they would agree to a summit meeting with Premier Khrushchev of the Soviet Union. It sounds like a silly question today, but it was very pertinent then. What did each of them say to that? They both had the same answer, that they wouldn't commit themselves to it, and they wouldn't do it without a lot of advanced preparation. They both had the right answer to it, and they agreed on it. My third and final question, I don't remember what I had intended to ask, But I was so enamored of what they were already responding, both of them, to a previous question that I wanted to keep that debate going. And so I did what I never dreamed I'd ever do. I ad-libbed a question to just pursue the points that were being made. Maybe it was to prove that I was listening. (laughs) What was it? Each of them was saying what he intended to do domestically and internationally. I don't remember the wording of the question, but it was, how the heck can you do all these things you're promising and not break the budget? It was addressed to Kennedy, but when you addressed it to either one of them, it was to both because each one would respond. That sounds like a pertinent question for many eras in our history, but what answer did they give to that? They both said they could do it. They said, trust us. No, they did more than that. They both were very pointed. They both were excellent debaters, both of them. I wouldn't have wanted to debate against either one of them. Nixon was the more experienced debater, but he was much more solemn. And uh, Kennedy, in the television age, was a much more, I don't know if the word would be convincing, but certainly a much more successful debater for television. Janie Gould spoke with retired journalist Al Spivak. This is Florida Frontiers. The Great Depression of the 1930s hit Florida particularly hard, and the New Deal brought welcome relief to many. Bill Dudley has this look at Florida's New Deal legacy. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. When Floridians listened to Franklin Roosevelt's first inaugural address on March 4, 1933, Florida had already been in the midst of a depression for seven years, since the land bust and subsequent hurricanes of 1926 and 28. Fully one-third of the state was on some kind of welfare. So that there was just this incredible need to somehow 
help people. Roosevelt said that a third of the nation was ill-housed, ill-fed, and ill-clad. Florida International University professor of political science and law, John Stack, is co-editor of a new book, The New Deal in South Florida, a look at how Roosevelt's plans transformed the region through social programs and a multitude of building projects. Co-editor John Stewart is professor of architecture at FIU. The projects really ranged from small-scale initiatives like painting sidewalks, painting street signs, mid-range projects like small community buildings like the Coral Gables Fire Station, to much larger scale projects, the Orange Bowl, one of the largest stadiums in the United States here in Miami. Liberty Square Housing was one of the largest housing projects. The third largest project in the United States was the Overseas Highway to Key West. The goals of the New Deal, with its alphabet soup of agencies like the WPA, the CCC, and the PWA, and others, were putting people back to work fostering community pride, and restoring confidence in the federal government. It was designed to put the best face one could during terrible economic times on the federal government. But what's interesting and complex about it was that it was crafted at the local level. Policy generally was defined in Washington, and then it was left to the states to implement it. One example was the transformation of the island city of Key West, bankrupt since 1934. I mean, they had a choice. They could either abandon Key West and make it a naval outpost or build Key West into something new. A decision with lasting consequences was made to encourage tourism and the arts. They imported artists and created an art market for the art that was made in Key West. Essentially in invented the identity of Key West. It's a, in, a, in a very small sense, it is what they did to the entire region. Although thousands of Floridians were saved from destitution or severe hardship, not everyone was happy with New Deal intervention. One glimpse into the feelings of the times is provided by a group of letters from Florida's clergyman to FDR, discovered in the Roosevelt Library. Clergymen from Jacksonville, from Belle Glade, from Key West and Miami commented on the role of the New Deal, and they gave him hell in many cases. Several criticized the president for repealing prohibition. One man said Miami liquor traffic was tearing down the spiritual and material welfare of the people. Others offered suggestions to help local industries. Some, like many Floridians of the time, were skeptical of the state's growing dependence on tourism. The New Deal, with all of its tremendous economic benefits, set South Florida on the course that we see today, an economy based on servicing tourism. That has some negative consequences for community building, for the people who work there and live there year-round. And I think John and I found this in virtually every community that we looked at in South Florida. One of the book's chapters contrasts 1930s photographs of affluent South Floridians with the very poorest people of the area. Another looks at the racial divide between black and white in Miami and the Liberty Square Project, one of the first to provide subsidized housing for blacks. The project became a lightning rod for struggles over its location and amenities. That was probably the most important social activity of the New Deal in South Florida. It changed the portrait of the city in a significant way for a significant number of people. And it was the, one of the largest battles that was fought here between the federal government and local officials. In the end, the New Deal helped thousands of Floridians while drastically altering the political and physical landscape of Florida through a unique marriage of design and social change. Its effects are still very much with us. The New Deal was a particularly important time where 
so many things came together. And it's interesting to see how it continues to have an impact and how it shaped the future. FIU professors John Stewart and John Stack. Their book is The New Deal in South Florida, published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.